go on. First of all, Grow 101. Hey, if Living Hope is your uh, church to call home, but you've never uh, really made a DTR, defining the relationship, uh, I would invite you to check out the Grow 101 class. Sign-ups are outside or online, and you can decide at the end if you want to be a member. The second announcement is we have lunch break. So once a month, we have a lunch after the service um, at the second and third service, and next week's lunch break will be sponsored by the men's ministry, and so I hope they provide good food for us. Um, and, you know, one other quick announcement that's not on the slide, but today after the service, there's a bake sale by the Compass Honduras team, and so our youth group is going to Honduras to uh, minister to our church plant and the children there, and so I'll go and eat something sweet, okay? Um, I don't know if you've um, looked at the news, but this past week, there were two bits of news that kind of stood out, uh, stood out in my mind. The first is this. First is um, the bombing in Sri Lanka and the hotels and churches that killed uh, over 250 people. Um, it was massive, and even yesterday, as they were, as the law enforcement officers were uh, tracking down the perpetuators, there were 14 more people killed. The second uh, bit of news, uh, it might have gone under the radar for you a little bit, but a man by the name of John William King, any of you remember him, John William King, was executed in Texas because of a murder. And what John William King did a while back was he had chained a man to the back of his truck bumper, dragged him for three miles on a deserted dirt road, and the man literally was torn apart and died along the way. The, and the reason why James Bird Jr. was picked out and, and tied and murdered that way, because James Bird Jr. happened to be black. I don't think it is a, an argument to believe that we live in a broken world. Politicians, religious leaders, academicians, um, law enforcement officers, mothers of preschoolers, junior high school boys, um, those who just recently got married, daughter-in-laws, we all understand that we live in a broken world with broken people. So there's something wrong. And for several weeks, from Romans 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 20, we learn that there is a problem with humanity. John R. Stott summarized it this way, all human beings of every race and rank, of every creed and culture, Jews and Gentiles, the immoral and demoralizing, the religious and the irreligious are without any exception, sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. That's the argument, that was the conclusion that, that Paul gives to us in this first section of Romans. And now we're in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. If you have not done so yet, would you fire up your app, turn, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And Paul now pivots with these two words, but now, as if he's saying, now we're going to uh, go to a next logical uh, idea. We have a problem with humanity. We're guilty, but now. Uh, chronologically, there's, there's something wrong, but now. 
And in verses 21 through 26, we're going to uh, understand what the solution to the problem of humanity is. And this is so important. This particular set of passage is so important that Martin Luther, uh, the, the father of the Protestant Reformation, said that this is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. The commentator, Leon Morris, said it is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. And so if you are here this morning... Um, and you've been a Christian for a long time, and you think you understand the Christian gospel message, I want to say that this paragraph that we are covering today will uh, dive into it and give you certain depth that um, I don't know if you've uh, dived in before. In fact, at the end of this 30-minute uh, message, I think most of you will be able to walk away uh, knowing more theology than most other Christians. If you're here for the very first time and you're not a believer and you just kind of happen to be here by accident and you don't know anything about Christianity, what you'll hear for the next 30 minutes will give you a, 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 like a core summary of, of what Protestant Christianity is and how it's different what makes it unique from, um, from other religions and even uh, those others who call themselves Christians but not necessarily Protestant uh, Christians. And so we're going to look at verses 21 through 26. But, um, you know, as I continue to talk, you can look at your Bibles. But uh, for right now, I want you to look at the screen because um, up on the screen, it's the ESV version. And as I read, we're going to look at a few, verse, a few words and I'm going to introduce to you five words that are loaded theologically and that's meaningful. Um, and, and we're going to look at those five words today, but we're going to read together. I'm going to introduce to you those five words. First of all, it says uh, in verse 21, but now the righteousness, and if you're uh, up in the booth, can you um, forward to the next slide? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all lips sin and fall short of the glory of God. So the first word that we're going to kind of set aside is the word righteousness. And I'm going to describe and define that later. As we continue in verse 24, and are justified. And that's the next slide. Justified. By his grace as a gift. And this is the word uh, which we get uh, justification from. And so if you ever heard like pre uh, Christian uh, leaders or theologians or if you ever go to Bible college, uh, the word that they would throw around is justification. And this is where we get it from. And, um, and we're going to dive into what that means as well. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. And this is the third word that we're looking at redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a, this is the fourth word, propitiation. This is a word that we don't really know, and no, no one uses this term, propitiation. What does that mean? And it is um, only when, like seminarians, when they get to the, the theology class and they learn propitiation, that they start using it, but really, no one really knows what it means. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show um, and um, in the ESV, it's the word show, but uh, uh, in some other versions, it used demonstrate. It's, uh, the fifth word is demonstration. To show 
um, God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we're going to look at this section, in, uh, this whole passage in, in two sections, righteousness through justification and justification through the cross. And um, I know this is heavy theology, but, you know, my experience at Living Hope is um, uh, the people who are regular attendees who, who come to Living Hope, um, you, you are smart and you understand, and first-timers tend to be even smarter, so I appreciate uh, your willingness, but I think this is going to be fun. Let's look at righteousness through justification, righteousness through justification. We began in verse 21 after having talked about the problem of humanity, that the problem was that we're not righteous enough, we're not good enough, but now the righteousness of God, okay? So this righteousness is an important term. Um, in, in Greek, it has the idea of God's judicial approval, uh, that which is approved by God. So we've been told this whole time we are not judicially approved by God. We're not good enough. We don't make the cut. If we have an idea in our minds of what makes us good enough for God, we've learned that we're not good enough. But now the righteousness of God, and he continues, has been manifested apart from the law, and, um, etc. There are like four... Uh, things here that makes the, the Christian message unique. Uh, let me just quickly give you the four things. First of all, it's based on the righteousness of God. It's based on the righteousness of God. Uh, it, it talked about the unrighteousness of man, but now the righteousness of God. Okay? And so instead of talking about how we can become more righteous, like, but now this is how we can become more righteous. But it says, but now the righteousness of God, or the NIV says the righteousness that from God, the righteousness that originates from God. Secondly, uh, the second thing that we can notice here, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So it is not based upon how good we are according to uh, whatever law that we have, um, although the law and the prophets pointed to this manifestation. Thirdly, it is through faith, through faith. It is not on the basis of what we do, but what we place our trust in. And finally, it is through faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't simply a generic faith, but specific faith, a faith uh, based on uh, Jesus Christ. So we who are unrighteous or not good enough um, can become righteous good enough uh, by the goodness of God, not predicated upon our personal goodness. Now, you know, all religions operate on the basis of works, and, and it doesn't really matter what religion, and it, it doesn't matter what the moral standards are, but their basis of, of what is approved or what can be achieved is um, what the person can achieve, can do. And, and that allows them to be more accepted by their God. A few weeks ago, 
Um, I heard a knock on my door. I opened the door. There were two men and a little boy, and I knew immediately who they were because they were holding colored pamphlets. Who, who were they? Jehovah's Witnesses, right? right? And I've had other Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, but this was different. And as I opened the door, and there was two men, and they're you know, dressed nicely, of course, and, and, um, and you know, if they're two like, white men with little name tags, you know what that is. They're, they're el- um, right, elders from the Mormon church. But they're Jehovah's Witnesses. But what was a little bit different this time was they, um, I opened the door, and they started, like, like, they bowed to me, and they started speaking Korean. So I've had Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door before, but never like Koreans. Um, and, I was, and you know, when like Koreans meet other Koreans, there's this thing that we can't be rude. <laughs> uh, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> right? So I'm like bowing back and I'm trying to be all polite. Um, you know, but I, I knew. And then soon as, you know, like they, they said, uh, you know, they're Yohajin or they're from Jehovah's Witnesses. I said, oh, okay, you know, thank you. But, you know, like. And then they had, you know, they, they pulled this, like, they had the boy talk. And, um, you know, and, and so, but, you know, like, what, what was going through my mind was, like, how did they find out that I'm Korean and I live here? You know, that was amazing to me. But I don't know if you realize why or ever thought about why Jehovah's Witnesses try so hard at evangelism. I don't know if you've ever, like, kind of, like, thought about what makes these Jehovah's Witnesses so bold so that they would go to absolute strangers' homes, knock on the door, be rejected 99 times to maybe, you know, have one conversation? And the reason I want to tell you is this. Uh, theologically, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there is uh, 144,000 people that will be in heaven to be co-reigners with Jesus Christ. Everyone else will live on earth. And the way that you become a part of the 144,000 is to work hard. Part of it is to gain converts through their door-to-door evangelism. So for a Jehovah's Witness, for a Jehovah's Witness to be righteous enough means to go door-to-door. And all religions operate that way. Uh, in order to be approved by God, you have to be good enough in the eyes of God. But what we learned here almost immediately is not on the basis of our righteousness, but the righteousness of God. And then we get to our second term, and the second term uh, is justification. Justification. Verse 24. Uh, Because we we are told in verse 23, all of sin falls short of the glory of God, No amount of effort will make us good enough, but the righteousness of God received by faith in Jesus will result in what we are told in verse 24 and are justified by his grace. This is the big theological term that we learn in seminary. It is a legal term. A judge can uh, pronounce or a jury can pronounce a defendant guilty. Uh, condemn uh, that defendant and then hand down a sentence, a punishment. Justification means something different. It is a declaration of righteousness. 
or as one of my theology, um, uh, theology professor used to uh, tell us, justification is just as if I had never committed that sin. Just as if. Justification. Now, chapters 1 through 3 uh, spent considerable amount of time proving our guilt. Verse 24 reverses all of that and says, those who have faith in Jesus are declared righteousness. Now listen, at the moment of salvation, the Christian is instantaneously, irreversibly declared not liable for condemnation, a, declare, a declaration that there is no ground uh, for punishment that exists. That is justification. That, now, I want to say that there's a subtle difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is you're declared righteous, but that's what, that, that doesn't mean that a Christian, the moment he becomes a Christian, starts living perfect righteousness. But it is sanctification that changes us uh, more into the image of Jesus Christ, that causes us to become more and more righteous. And our, and our lifetime is spent becoming more and more righteous or becoming more and more uh, pleasing to God. And that will only finish in heaven in what we call glorification. Now, um, how does justification occur, or what is it based upon? And we go to justification through the cross. They, are, they all talk about faith in Jesus, what Jesus um, did. In verse 25, it is specified that it is upon uh, his blood, and that's a euphemism. And when Christians talk about blood, and you know, like, I feel bad for non-Christians sometimes. When they first come to church, we sing about blood like we're a bunch of vampires or something. Right? It feels a little bit weird, um, but uh, the blood of Jesus is a euphemism talking about his death. Okay? And um, and there, uh, the death of Jesus, which I will call the cross, accomplished at least three things that, that we find in this particular passage. The first is that of redemption. Redemption. And verse 24, and are justified by his, uh, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Now, uh, redemption is a commercial term to re- um, mean a release effected by payment of ransom. is someone paying a price to set one free. Now, at a very base level, it means that someone is paying a debt that you owe, okay? Redemption at a base level means it is someone else is paying a debt that you owe. You know what, um, um, you know, when I was a little bit younger, uh, married with young children, there would be times when we would be at a restaurant um, and we're eating like at a Chinese uh, place at New Garden or something and we meet, we see someone across the restaurant that we know. And say hello, or if they're like Korean, I go, you know, be like, hey, you know, like I bow to them, especially if they're older, and say hello. And we go back to our seats and we eat. And I don't know if this has happened to you, but as a pastor, maybe because yeah, I'm a pastor, it happens to me a little bit more frequently. You know, toward the end of their meal, as they, as they finish and they're leaving, they come by, Moksanim, or Pastor, we got you. And, you know, it's one of the nicest things, right? Like, like they, they 
they've taken care, uh, care of your bill. I, I think the, the next best thing is if they just leave without telling us, but the server comes and says, hey, the people who left, they took care of your bill. I think the best thing, the best thing is when you meet someone, they leave, they don't say anything, um, but the server comes and says, they've taken care of, your, care of your bill and they've already tipped me so you don't have to worry. Because <laughs> that's always awkward. I don't know if you've had someone pay for your meal and you have to ask, did they cover your tip? You know, because if they did it, you have to kind of figure out how much tip you should pay them and, you know, et cetera, right? Um, at a base level, redemption means someone else paying what you should pay. Does that make sense? Now, furthermore, it means more than that. Uh, it means paying a debt um, to set us free during Old Testament times. It was an agrarian society, so uh, it was easy to get into debt, and when you cannot um, pay your debt in that particular culture, in order to re- resolve your debt, you would sell yourself into slavery to that individual, the people that you owe money to or others to get that money. And oftentimes, the indentured uh, servitude would have a period of time to, to cover how much money you owe, or it could be a lifetime. Now, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 25, the, the scripture gives us this concept of uh, a kinsman redeemer or a goel where if your family member, an uncle or a cousin, somehow got into bankruptcy and they sold themselves into slavery to another family, a landowner, you ought to go and redeem your kinsman. Uh, finish paying that debt off so that you can free um, your family member. So redemption means not only having someone pay your debt, but to pay your debt so that you can be set free. But redemption means more than that. It's not only having someone pay your debt and and to set you free, but it's to pay your debt that you've caused by your sin and to have someone free you. I gave this illustration probably last year, or, or I don't quite remember, but when I was in Korea, I was a little boy probably first, second grade, I was walking down a dirt road and um, there were little pebbles or rocks. I picked it up and there was a wall, so I threw it at the wall. I was walking with my friend, saw another rock. I picked up another rock. And, and, and you know, guys, what do we do when we have rocks in our hands? We, we throw it. And, and, and um, there's a wall, but there was a target you know, if you're throwing something at the wall, you naturally point, throw it at whatever object that happens to be there, which I just threw it at the window. And so I broke the window of a barber shop. And uh, my friend ran away. For some reason, I just stood there. And I, I wasn't smart enough to realize that this was something bad that I did. And the barbershop owner came out and saw me just standing there, I'm sure audaciously, he, he came and took me by the wrist and asked me, did you break my window? And I, you know, I guess I wasn't smart enough also to lie, so I said yes. And then he asked me this question, and this is the, the perpetual question that moms been asking, moms around the world throughout history have been asking their little boys forever, 
It's the same question that wives ask their husbands, and, and, and this is the question that men and boys can never figure out when they ask, why did you do that? And my answer was, I don't know. And uh, men, you know what I'm talking about. Your wives ask you, why did you do that? And uh, we're not lying when we say, I just don't, we don't know. We, sometimes our, our brains just don't work properly. There's a rock, there's a window, we throw it. Why did you do that? I don't know. It just, it just happened, right? And so the barbershop owner took me by the wrist, took me into the barbershop, uh, sat me down in the barbershop ch- uh, chair, and I'm, by now I'm just bawling. Um, I've incurred the debt by my sin. I can't redeem myself. And they ha- it's a small neighborhood. They eventually found my grandfather. He came. He apologized. He paid the debt, gave him a pack of cigarettes to, you know, for a good return, and redeemed me. Okay? Uh, redemption is not simply paying a debt, but a paying a debt that I've caused by my sin so that I can be free. There's a sense in which all, each one of us are enslaved to sin and guilt, and we have, the, uh, we have no ability to pay the ransom. Jesus says, and normally we, when we uh, read this particular verse, um, the, the, what we focus on is service. But I want you to listen with fresh ears. Jesus says of himself, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And we normally hear it, so yeah, yeah, we got to be servants. But I want you to listen. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life to pay the penalty of a debt that we could not pay to free us. A, 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 a debt that we incurred by our sin. And that was Jesus Christ. You know, when we normally hear Redeemer, we sometimes think, oh, Redeemer, that's a nice word, so, and we don't quite think about what it actually means. So isn't that Tim Keller's church, the Redeemer Church? Redeemer means someone who paid the price that you and I should have paid to free us from guilt and sin. Um, so that we can be free. That's redemption. The second term from this section is propitiation. Propitiation. Uh, some of your translation in your Bible will use the word atonement. Uh, some translation will say it's a sacrifice of atonement. It is a technical word that we rarely use, uh, but it means to appease uh, or to placate the anger of another. Verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. If you remember, we began in Romans 1.18 by saying that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Um, God is angry at sin. And uh, you know, I gave this illustration a little while ago by saying that God must be angry. A loving father has to also be an angry father. And the illustration I gave is 
if a father if, if, uh, took his daughter to the shopping mall, he's holding her by the hand and they're walking, this three-year-old, and a random stranger passes by and decides to slap your daughter. And she's bawling now. Uh, one of her baby tooth got knocked out. The response of the father should be what? That of anger. A father who is indifferent and apathetic cannot claim that he loves his daughter. Atonement or propitiation uh, uh, deals with, with the anger to appease. And if that stranger comes and slaps your child and says, here's $50 for the dentist bill, that's not good enough, is it? The only way to placate the wrath of the father is not to minimize the sin, but to deal with it justly. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we are told that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atonement, or the appeasement for our sins. The final word is demonstration. Demonstration. In verses 25 and 26, this was to show or to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show or demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, and, and I, I love this little term, he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, most people demand that God is two things. Most people demand that God is both loving and God is just. Does that make sense? That we believe um, that God, uh, when he sees suffering in the world, uh, must uh, show compassion and mercy and lift them out of whatever suffering they are uh, suffering from. At the same time, when we see evil in the world, we demand that God uh, punish the guilty and stop the evil. There's a tension here. Um, and I don't know if you've thought about it, but there's a tension, and it's the two sides of a, of a coin, in which we demand that God is both someone completely merciful and completely just at the same time. And this is not just you and I thinking that, but the Bible also says that. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15, it talks about what is an abomination to the Lord, what God hates. And what God hates is he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike and abomination to the Lord. So those who justify the wicked and condemn the righteous, that's an abomination. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1, he says, one ought to acquit the innocent and condemn the guilty. 
Now, let me ask you a question. We all, I think, agree that if there is a God, he must love uh, and be merciful and justify the innocent, and he must condemn, and he must judge those who are guilty. But, But let me... What happens if they happen to be the same people? What happens if the abuser is the abused at the same time? What happens if, for example, that John William King, the one who uh, dragged a random person on the back of his truck, what happens if we realize or if we found out that when he was a little child, he was abused. Does he deserve mercy and grace? What happens if we found out that the mastermind behind the Sri Lanka bombing did so partly because of the shooting that occurred in Christ Church in New Zealand and to take vengeance on his Muslim brothers? How do you deal with trying to be merciful and just at the same time? This is the tension. You know, among the many powers that the president has, not only presidents federally, but governors, you know, in a state's way, um, in a state level, is that the president has the power to grant pardons or commute sentences uh, for federal offenses. It's, it's a kind of a unique power, um, and it's pretty powerful. And past presidents have even commuted the sentences of murderers, those who commit murder and were, have been charged and found guilty and, and, and sentenced to death um, for federal crimes. And the, the reason why this is all... Uh, in the Constitution, actually, it's because uh, the writers of the Constitution probably believe that the system could sometimes break and you need a singular individual to try to make things right. And so, uh, historically, the presidents of, uh, of, of the United States on his last days, last weeks, will pardon a bunch of people, right? Now, let me ask you a question. What if the president has a wayward son, someone whom he deeply loves, but the son who's continuing to break his heart. And the son, um, though loved and loved and loved, given so many opportunities, has rejected the love of the father, the, the rule of the father, and in fact has gone out and did some horrendous thing that landed him in jail and has been condemned to spend the rest of its life in jail under a federal offense. Now, let me ask you a question. If the president, now, you know, don't, don't get all warped because of who the president is now, but, you know, if the president on his last days pardons his son because he loves him, whether it be Donald Trump or Barack Obama, what would the public, what, we, what would we say of the president? We would say of a president who pardons his own son um, of, of practicing nepotism, of being unjust, because we would point at 
What about the victims? What kind of justice is there for the victims? So now let me ask you a question. Again, how can a father judge be both merciful and just at the same time? And what Romans tells us again, and I want you to look at verse 26 again. This whole justification uh, through the cross was to show, verse 26, was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. Did you get that? He might be both um, just and merciful at the same time of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know, the only way that a father judge can be both just and justifier, loving and fair, is not simply to absolve his son of any kind of crime because that doesn't, that's not justice. But for him to take off his robe, come down and pay the penalty of his son's crimes. Now, most of this doesn't work because um, we understand that most of our president is, uh, every single one of our president, they're not without guilt themselves. So they can't do that. It has to be one who has no guilt in himself. It has to be someone who is sinless. And it has to be someone who can take on um, the, not only the crime, the, but the penalty of all people's sins and not be destroyed by it. It has to be a God-man. It has to be Jesus. I know we covered a lot of theological uh, terms today, and we didn't really talk a lot about faith, and we're going to do that next week and how that is applied to us, but I want you to understand this and how it applies to you, how God loves you in the supreme way that while you were unrighteous, deserving of the wrath of God, that God gave you his righteousness, so instead of being condemned for your sins, you can be declared approved by God that you did not pay the price that you should have paid but could not pay, you are not found innocent, but rather your sins were paid in full by the death of Jesus. That allowed, to God, that allowed God to express both his justice and love toward you. This is the basis of faith. And we'll talk next week about how I can apply that faith and what that means. Would you pray with me?